All right, if you want to open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy 4, we are nearing the end, but won't be covering much tonight. So 2 Timothy 4, and we'll just be reading verses 6 through 8. I'll read them, and then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that we could gather here tonight. Uh, We know that, Lord, unless you build the house, unless you do the work, uh, we labor in vain. And so we pray as as a speaker and as hearers that you would bless us, that you would favor us, that, Spirit, you'd be at work in our hearts, that we would uh, be able to hear this word uh, with meekness and humility and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to talk tonight about death which isn't necessarily the most popular topic uh, with family and friends, but uh, the Bible talks about it, and it's inevitable for all of us if the Lord tarries, and so we have to know how we are to think about it. And so Paul, in this passage, brings up death because he's nearing the end of his last letter um, to Timothy and his last letter overall, and he knows that the time of his departure, his death, is near. And so he sort of has this self-reflection, this short reflection to Timothy to model to him what a life well-lived looks like for a minister of the gospel, in which he looks back on his life and then also looks forward to his eternity. And so we're going to sort of follow that same framework. We're going to think about what will it look like for you as a Christian to look back as you're on your deathbed at your life and what it will look like to look forward at that point as well. Uh, And a quick word of warning, though, uh, for myself and you guys, is that it is very easy to talk about death and and nod our heads and assent to everything we're going to say, and then 10 minutes after we're done tonight to forget about it. I think one of the the reformers um, summarizes this well. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's worth it. He writes, It is not only the educated who know that human life is like a shadow or a puff of smoke. It is a saying familiar to ordinary folk. Yet there is nothing on earth which has been more readily ignored or remembered less. If we were at a burial or found ourselves among graves in a cemetery, I wager we would philosophize splendidly about the frailty of life, because then the image of death would be before our very eyes. But when this happens, our philosophizing is a brief affair, which vanishes the minute we turn our backs, then forgetting not only death but also our own mortality, as if the idea were unknown to us, we slip back into a foolish and inflated trust in our earthly immortality. And so the point he's trying to make is that we talk about it and then we forget. And so the goal tonight is, yes, to talk about death, but not only to intellectually assent to its reality, but to live differently, to apply this idea to our lives now so that we also can look back and look forward well, like we see uh, Paul doing here. So getting into the passage, Contextually, Paul has just finished charging Timothy with preaching the word and sort of in summary, fulfilling his ministry in all aspects. And then he he models to Timothy, like I said, what it looks like to live uh, a God-glorifying life as a minister. So we read in verse 6 again, 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And so Paul first describes his life as one in which he is being and has been poured out like a drink offering. And this is a reference to an Old Testament sacrifice commanded by God in which the priest, uh, along with most often the burnt offering, would take anywhere from a quarter to a half gallon of wine and pour it completely out on the burning offering. And this was commanded by God not only to, to point to the total and complete obedience he demands, but also as, as a way of honoring and glorifying him. It's ref, referenced always as uh, producing a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so for Paul to connect his life with the drink offering is to not only say that his life has been pleasing to God, but to also point to the level of sacrifice, the level of complete obedience he has offered God. Just like in the drink offering, you don't leave one ounce in the jug, you pour it all out. He's saying he's poured out his entire life for the Lord. And in Acts, he, he talks about something similar also when his departure is imminent, when he knows he's going to die. He says he, he doesn't care about his life. His only goal is to finish the race that God has put before him, finish the goal that God has given him, and preach the gospel to the lost. It's, it's a life of complete and utter sacrifice. It's a drink offering. Furthermore, as he looks back, he says that he has fought the good fight in his life. And now, when we read that, it's easy to say, all right, you can either fight the good fight or you cannot fight at all. But I don't think that's, that's quite the contrast we should have. We either fight the good fight or we fight the wrong fight. See, just like all humans are worshipers and you either worship false gods or you worship the true God, so are all humans fighters. We're all engaged in warfare. Some people fight for themselves and that looks like the fear of man sin, selfishness, comfort, security. They're fighting for these things. And other people, not perfectly, but truly fight for the Lord. It's not, as it's been said, whether, but, but which. You're going to choose between fighting the good fight or fighting the bad fight, the wrong fight. Uh, before World War II, when, when Germany was, had not yet declared war on all of Europe, they were conquering some smaller neighboring regions around them. And the British Prime Minister, in response to this, Neville Chamberlain, he pursued this policy called appeasement. The general idea was, if we grant Germany these smaller regions, but make them promise not to attack anyone else, we can avoid war, we can avoid bloodshed. And this was extremely popular in Britain. And yet we, we know how this played out. Germany, Hitler did not listen. They did not follow the agreement. They continued attacking everyone. World War II started and Chamberlain was kicked out of office and replaced by Winston Churchill, who's remembered as a national hero. And it's easy to look back on that and say, okay, Chamberlain didn't fight, Churchill fought. However, the, the real, again, dichotomy is Chamberlain fought the wrong fight. He fought for appeasement when he should have been fighting to contain and stop Germany from the beginning. And the unfortunate result is he's remembered as a failure in a lot of ways, and Churchill is remembered as the one who valiantly stood up against Hitler and led his country through World War II. And so, so similarly, as Christians, we are engaged in warfare. We don't have the choice. It's just a matter of what are we fighting for. And so we need to know our goal. And, and certainly, we, we know our goal generally is to, to glorify God, not to glorify self. But I think specifically, Paul, it's interesting here. 
Our goal isn't to avoid any sort of trouble in this life. Otherwise, Paul, who's in prison, he has chains on him, could not say that he has fought the good fight. From a worldly perspective, he has failed. Also, though, the goal isn't some apparent, clear, amazing fruitfulness. That a lot of times in the Christian walk, we will not see the fruits of our labor. It will not be apparent to us. And so for us to be able to say, we fought the good fight on our deathbed, is not avoiding negative outcomes, nor is it necessarily super clear fruit, it's faithfulness. It's submitting to and obeying God's law in all aspects of life. And, and we see that the kindness of our Lord here, he he's actually gives us a very simple directive. Just, just be faithful. It's not some extravagant thing in which we need to see X amount of fruit. It's just faithfulness in the spheres of responsibility that he has given us. And so along with this, this fight idea, Paul also says that he has, in, in verse 7, finished the race and kept the faith. This is perseverance. That despite all Paul has gone through and all he, he knows Timothy will go through, as we've, we've talked about in this letter, all that Timothy is even going through now, he's modeling to Timothy that he has persevered. He has entrusted himself to God even when all the lights were out. And that he continued to be faithful, continued the race. And so we, we see this idea that perseverance marks the Christian because they don't step out of the race, they don't stop, they don't quit, quit, they don't run the wrong race. They know what God has set before them and they continue doing it until the very end. And so stepping back, this, this is a life well lived. Paul is sharing this to model to Timothy what he is to pursue as a minister of the gospel. But I think principally... Um, there's a very direct connection to us as well, that we have to ask the question, what, when we reflect on our deathbed, on our life, what will we say? Will we be able to say what Paul is saying here about his life? I can think of nothing more pleasant than to be able to truly say that I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. And yet, oh, how, how hard is it for us as young people, especially, to take that to heart? We have bodies that work well, strong, vigorous, minds that are sharp. We're thinking about the future, starting families, jobs, buying houses, all of these good things. But the reality then is it's very hard for us to think about death and how we should live differently in light of death. And yet we, we have to think about it because Paul is telling Timothy, a relatively young man, to think about it. He's saying that, Timothy, if you want to be faithful, Think about what you will think about on your deathbed. If you want to be faithful now, you can't expect to be satisfied on your deathbed if you delay it and push off this reality to later in life when you're 40, 50. You have to start now. And so I think many of us, as we've talked about before in Second Timothy, we have, we have models in our life that we look up to older men, older women, even if it's just brief interactions, and we're like, oh, if I could just be half the man or half the woman that person is one day, I would be happy. And that, that is a good thing, and yet we have to acknowledge that they didn't become that man or that woman one day randomly when they woke up. It was a daily fight, a daily cross-carrying, a daily pursuit of holiness that eventually, by the grace of God, conformed them into someone that we want to model our lives off of 
too. And all of us want to leave a legacy. I think that's ingrained in human nature, in the church, especially in the family. We want to be remembered, not, not for our own glory in, when we're thinking purely, but, but for the glory of God. And if we want to leave a legacy for our children or grandchildren, that starts now, not when we're, our bodies are giving way because we're older. And like I said at the beginning, um, even while I'm talking, it's, it's really easy to intellectually acknowledge this and to agree and to nod our heads and say, yes, that's so true. But the difference is, do we live differently in light of it? Is there a, a, a lifestyle change, a thinking change, a perspective change in light of the certainty of our death? That's what matters. That's what Paul is trying to share. He's not just sharing it. Timothy knows he's going to die. He's sharing it to say, hey, if you want to be able to say this like me, you need to start contemplating the realities and the implications of this now. And so as we think about application, as we look back one day, there's a wide range of options we could go and talk about, but I specifically want to talk about our use of time. You know, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, God has given everyone the gift of time. Now, that could vary, but everyone has a certain amount of time on earth. It's a relatively universal gift, and the the word of the Lord is clear that we are to make the best use of it. We are to make the best use of our time. And yet, the world, the flesh, the devil are all trying to make us make the worst use of our time. And you and I know this. TV, social media, overbooked schedules, all of these things are trying to take our time and flush it down the toilet, right? And so... One of the root causes of this, I think, is, is this belief that we are owners of our time. You know, this type of thinking is, is really native to us, even in, in our vernacular. How do I want to use my time today? Oh, it, it, I really use my time well. Or annoyance when other people interrupt my schedule. I think C.S. Lewis reflects it best when he says that we, in our sin wake up and believe that we are the lawful possessors of 24 hours. That we think there that is our time. Even though the Lord himself has given us breath, he has given us another day, he has given us time on this earth, and we wouldn't even be able to exist apart from him, and yet we think it is ours. So we have to understand that, that our time is not ours. It's the difference between ownership and, and stewarding, right? An owner is, is over something. He has the right to something. He, he has the authority to do what he pleases, what he desires with that object. On the other hand, a steward recognizes that they are dealing with someone else's possessions. You think of a house sitter, right? The house, the possessions in the house, the, the house sitter knows that they don't treat the house like it's theirs. They're treating the house like it's the owner's, and so they behave differently as a result, right? Ownership versus stewardship. And so with our time, we are stewards. It's not our own. It's, it's a gracious gift from God that we are to handle well, handle responsibly. And so if we want to, like Paul, depart this earth and say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, to look back with contentment, we must use our time well, not when we're 60 or 70 only, but when we're 20 and 32. So I'm not saying this needs to look exactly the same for all of us, right? That here's a list of things that you must do, and here's a list of things that you you can't spend your time on. That would be an imposition on your Christian liberty, and it would also be a false reflection of 
God's will for his people, he, he's not trying to make a bunch of robots that just do the exact same thing and enjoy the exact same things, right? But what I am saying is that there needs to be an intentionality about your time. Otherwise, you will be fighting the wrong fight. It's not neutrality, right? You will be wasting your time. There's no neutral. It's either time well spent or, or there's, there's a lot of opportunities for wasted time, especially in our culture. And so there needs to be an intentionality. And so whether this is spending five minutes a week memorizing scripture, or if you're a, a current or future mom, it's prioritizing reading books, listening to sermons on, on motherhood and child rearing, or, or it's replacing half your social media usage with a podcast, right? We could go on and on with examples, but the principle to keep in mind is, is you take your God-given responsibilities, whatever they may be, and you line your time and energy investment up with those. And so if your God-given responsibilities are to serve the church in a specific matter and to care for your family, well, use your time if you believe God has given you those responsibilities to do the best possible work in those avenues, right? It's an alignment principle. What has God given you as a duty should be reflected in what you spend your time on. Okay, so that's part one, the, the look back. Now, in verse 8, Paul sort of looks forward, and we'll go through this a little bit quicker. So, he says in verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so, when, the, the, when Paul stands before Christ, the righteous judge, he's utterly confident that he's going to receive this crown of righteousness. And we'll get to that in a minute. But um, when we think of judge, we think of judgment for sin. It, it's scary, right? And certainly for the non-believer, when they think of death and they think of standing before the Lord, it should lead them to fear because they do, they're not covered with the blood of Christ. However, a righteous judge always is just. They always give people what they deserve. And so when believers die and they go to stand before the righteous judge, they are also standing before their Savior. In that almost the judge has to, by right, not only declare them innocent because of Christ's work, but also give them regal, kingly, crown-like honor. That the, the judge awards things to those that deserve them. And so we don't deserve them, but Christ deserves them. And so when we are saved and we are brought into union and fellowship with him, not only are we declared innocent, although that is certainly true, we receive all the kingly benefits that he receives for his life. And so we should be excited about standing before the righteous judge, not because we have done anything to earn this crown of righteousness, but because Christ has earned this crown and given us these kingly regal benefits that he himself deserves. And so this crown, that, that language of righteousness is to be seen as the end perfection of the believer, where, where all unrighteousness is scrubbed away and we, we are left completely pure. And again, this isn't merited, it's awarded. And so Paul makes sure to emphasize with this that it's not only him who, who will receive this crown, it is all who loved the Lord's appearing. It is all believers. It is a guarantee. It is a right. It is something that all believers throughout the ages know that they will receive in heaven. It's a guarantee. It's a promise from the Lord. And so, two quick applications from this. 
The first being Christians should not fear death. I think it's, it's a sad reality that there's often no difference between the Christian and the non-Christian's view of death, that both parties are scared of it, they don't want to talk about it, they want to avoid it at all possibilities. How far is that from the biblical reality, though? How far is that from God's promises to us? And that we know that since Christ resurrected, we too will resurrect when we die. We will spend eternity with him. And now I'm not saying that, that you should go like some of the early church fathers and, and try and pursue martyrdom. We're to take our life and, and live it to the glory of God while he gives it to us. And nor am I trying to, to shame anyone who does fear death. All I'm trying to say is that we should view uh, a, a looking forward to our death as part of our sanctification process. That regardless of where you're at, whether you, you are, already are looking forward to it or you're scared of death, trying to, trying to increasingly look forward to the day of your departure because you know what awaits you afterwards. That we are pilgrims on this earth. This earth is not our home. It is full of trials and pain and difficulty. And yes, there are good blessings from the Lord, but those pale in comparison to the blessings in heaven. So don't let the, the good things on, on earth make you not look forward to the life to come because one millisecond, in heaven, with the crown of righteousness on us, is worth way more than all the treasures of this earth. Um, the second thing, and, and last thing we'll, we'll end on, is this idea of the crown of righteousness being given to us. It should lead to worship. Meditating on that, the reality that we will be made righteous is a thought beyond comprehension, because we are ourselves, by nature and action, and in this world, full of and surrounded by sin, full of and surrounded by unrighteousness. We live in a cursed world. And far from being an ethereal, conceptual concept to all of us, this is an all-too-present reality. You think about all the pain you've gone through in your life, everything you're dealing with now, this week, this day, all the future trials, it's all because of sin. It's all because of unrighteousness. And to receive this crown, therefore, when we go to be with the Lord, is saying all of that is going away. That we will be made perfectly righteous. We will be made clean. I remember um, in 2021, uh, myself and, and Max and Jared went out to Colorado to camp and spend a week out in the mountains with um, a good amount of other guys that we lived with. And it was a great trip, a lot of memories. Um, but after a week up in the mountains, uh, where the closest thing you get to a shower is hopping in the cold, uh, very cold mountain lake, uh, we did not smell the best. And so as you're coming down this mountain, you, you realize more and more that you're some conglomeration of mosquito repellent, campfire smoke, and sweat. And it, it sort of just clings to you. And so as you do, um, you, you find a shower. And so we went to Flying Jay's gas station and bought a shower and waited around for 30 minutes with the truckers and eventually was able to get into these, these public washrooms and with hair and who knows what on the ground and sharing this three ounce tube of biodegradable shampoo and using Flying J's clean towels to dry off and taking our last pair of clean clothes that sat in the van for a week straight with a bunch of other clean clothes. And um, you're probably thinking what I'm thinking, which is, is probably the best shower I've ever had in my life. Um, it, I felt amazing, right? And, and it wasn't because I was really clean, right? But it was because I was relatively so clean. 
that I've been so disgusting, so dirty before, that that shower felt like rain from heaven. I felt like on Mr. Clean's level of cleanliness, right? Because compared to before, I was, I was so much better. And that's an infinitely small picture of what receiving this crown will be like. Far from just having campfire smoke and sweat, we are inwardly defiled by sin. We are disgusting. And far from flying jays water coming over us, we have the water of washing of renewal of the Spirit being brought to completion. We are inwardly made truly clean. Imagine that feeling. Never sinning again. Never being tempted to sin again. Fully present with the Lord, staring at his beauty, with, with no obstacles, nothing else to do for all eternity, increasingly just happy and at peace and at joy with the Lord. That's what righteousness means, and that's what is guaranteed to you, believer. And so we are to look forward to that day, not be scared of it, but to be excited for it. And so with that, I'll pray, and then we can uh, sing. Heavenly Father, um, You say in your word that you have told us many things that we will have assurance of eternal life. That you desire your people to know where we are going, just like any good father. And so, Lord, let us not test you by doubting such a great promise that you have given us, but instead, by faith, by your grace, let us receive with great joy the assurance that we will surely stand before you with great joy and rejoicing one day, happy, clean, and in your presence for all eternity. Lord, please give us a, a great conviction over that reality. And Lord, I pray that that would allow us to live zealously for you while we are on this earth, that the certainty of our eternity with you when we will enter into the celestial city, will make us live as pilgrims on this earth faithfully and with great courage and with great obedience. Lord, you know our frames. You know that we are tempted to forget. I know I am. And so I pray that you would help us remember and help us apply uh, these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.